You got a Bible? Get it out. You don't got a Bible? Repent and look on with a friend. Or just, just go on the interwebs and find a Bible, right? So it's not so hard nowadays. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, is going to be our text. I'm going to get to it in just a minute. But maybe a large number of you saw a movie in 2014. It was called Unbroken. It's a true story of a World War II soldier named Louis Zamperini. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but the movie uh, kind of tells the story of how he and some soldiers were flying uh, in the Pacific Ocean, and their plane is shot down, and they crash into the ocean. They're at sea for 47 days, and then they're rescued by a ship. The problem is the ship is a Japanese war vessel. So Zamperini and the other surviving soldier are now prisoners of war. And, uh, and that doesn't go well in World War II in Japan. They're taken to a war camp where they find out that Zamperini is actually an officer and a former Olympian. And because of his notoriety, the head of the prison camp, he's a corporal at the time, takes an especially cruel interest in uh, Zamperini. And he just constantly beats him and, uh, and berates him, but then beats him some more. And eventually, uh, these the beatings like this go on until this corporal gets a promotion and a transfer. So the Japanese uh, uh, soldier now is transferred elsewhere. So Zamperini is so thankful that he no longer has to face a kind of what has become a personalized persecution. But then their camp that he's in gets closed down. They get transferred to another camp, the exact camp that the Japanese corporal had been promoted to. And so the beatings begin again and the beatings continue. Uh, for over two years, he's a personal punching bag of this Japanese soldier until finally American forces liberate the camp when they occupy it in 1945. So the movie ends, but Zamperini's life continues. It doesn't tell the whole story of his life, but when he gets home, he, he's filled with anger. He's married, he has two kids, but he has a tremendous anger problem and a bitterness problem. He vows up to save enough money to travel to Japan, find this Japanese soldier, and kill him for the way he tortured him. You didn't see that in the movie. He's so passionate for enacting revenge that he actually dreams about struggling, excuse me, struggling with and strangling this soldier as he sleeps. The only problem, he's actually at one point choking his pregnant wife in his sleep because of his dream. So his anger engulfs him so much that his wife files for and is on the verge of divorcing him for our own, sa for his own, for our own safety. So this story leads us to the words here that Jesus speaks about forgiving our enemies. It's a strong picture of somebody who didn't and at that time couldn't. And let's look at this section as we conclude our look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise, he makes the sun rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here is the scripture that speaks about some radical ideas of forgiveness. Was anyone who had the right 
to hate his enemy, it was Louis Zamperini. Beaten as a prisoner of war, this Japanese corporal, and then later promoted, is the epitome of the enemy. And Zamperini's PTSD actually drove him to become an alcoholic, he would say, and almost cost him his marriage. If anyone deserves to be hated in Zamperini's life, it's this Japanese soldier. But Jesus gives a hard teaching here, and the hard teaching here we're going to consider together with fresh ears this morning, because remember, the heart of the law reflects the heart of God. Jesus explained, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. And I want to say to you, as followers of Jesus, we forgive and we love. As followers of Jesus, we love like Jesus loved, and he loved his enemies. Now, that's a strange thing for us to hear, so let's walk through and see what Jesus had to say about it. And we'll start by looking again at our outline. Our outline has been the same now for weeks. It's like, Ed, are you actually working on these sermons, or are you just making the same outline? Well, the reason it's the same outline is Jesus is making the same pattern six times now. So let's take a look at that pattern. It first starts with the law, and you know where it's going to go, the meaning and the application. This is what Jesus does every time when we go through this. He says, you have heard, this is number one, the law, if you're taking notes, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now again, when Jesus is quoting something, he tends to be quoting the law, which refers to us to the Old Testament. Now, again, you may ask, where in the Bible does it say uh, that, you should not, that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Well, Leviticus 19.18 has part of that. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if you would mind, go back to the screen before, and if you look, it says here, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the verse in Leviticus, I didn't see the words, hate your enemy. Matter of fact, I've searched the whole Bible for where in the Old Testament, the New, or anywhere else where it says, you shall hate your enemy. And I have not yet found it. It must be in Second Opinions chapter 11, verse 4, because it's not there. So what was Jesus quoting? Well, Jesus was actually quoting what people were saying. You have heard it said. So he's saying people are saying this, and they're misunderstanding the part of Leviticus. Leviticus says you shall love your neighbor. But he goes on beyond that. Now here's the deal. Can I tell you, it's actually generally pretty easy to love your neighbor, but not always. Depends upon your neighbor, right? So I was, uh, I was in Los Angeles this week, and my flight, worst day of travel in forever, I, uh, I was, uh, you know, travel's not fun anymore. If you, have, if you know someone who has a job, they travel, and you're like, oh, that must be so glamorous, everyone thinks that for a week. And then you start missing flights, and things start going bad. And so my flight went bad, so I'm spending the night in this hotel by the airport in Los Angeles, which if any of you know anything about hotels in the airport in Los Angeles, it's not a happy time. And I will tell you, my neighbor was drunk and loud, and I had a hard time loving him that day. <laughs> but generally, it tends to be pretty easy to love your neighbor, because your neighbor tends to be, not always, but is often people like you. So Leviticus reminds us, right, so it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, right, people like you, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. But then Jesus says, 
you shall love your neighbor. But then he adds this rest on, which is not in the Bible, but people are saying, says, and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it's going to work. We're going to see this is not the first time that Jesus is actually telling us to uh, love somebody or love those who are different than us. Look with me at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 says, Jesus is giving commandments, his commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment, right? So love God. Great. We like that. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now don't miss this, right? You're going to love your neighbor as yourself because on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is actually saying that loving your neighbor pretty much covers everything else, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but, but when I was a kid in high school, I really tried to ask the teacher. I was probably a very um, irritating student. I'm, some of you wouldn't probably be surprised. But they would give us these long study guides, and they would be, you know, you got to study this and this and this and this. And I really knew that they really, they, they don't need to give me this long study guide. What I would say to the teacher, I still remember my physics teacher in high school. I said, listen, what do you really need me to know? And he said, physics. He said, no, I didn't really mean that. He said, he said, physics. And so, so, again, there's a longer list of the law, but it really boils down to love your neighbor, doesn't it? So, again, love your neighbor is a theme that we see in the Bible. But Jesus then goes on to say, he says, but he says, you said, and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. So let me again say, Jesus is saying, you have heard, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say. Now remember, this is the theme, this is the format Jesus has been following now for six things, right? So Pastor Bill and I have gone through six, this is the sixth thing together where Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said, but I say. So you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And but I say something different. I say something distinct from that. Now, I want you to know that you probably with me can see how loving your neighbor and hating your enemy is a natural conclusion of the way people would think, right? We sort of protect our own. We sort of look out for others. We love our uh, neighbors and hate our enemies. I grew up on just outside of New York City on Long Island in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. The name is Stetzer. That has to do with a rogue Dutch ancestor, but the blood is green because it's Irish. My family are the McGlades and the McConnells and the Skinners and others, and so I grew up. So finally, to get out of Nashville a year and a half ago, to move to the place that dyes the river green brings joy to my heart. So it's good to be here in what was at one point the uh, fourth largest Irish community in, in the country. And so, but uh, for, I will tell you this, where I lived first in a place called Floral Park, which is on the border of the city and Long Island, and then a little out, uh, a little out farther in a place called Levittown, uh, in, the, in the Irish Catholic neighborhood I knew, we stuck up, we stand up for one another, but we didn't like other people coming into our neighborhood. In fact, sometimes that was racial, sometimes that was linguistic, and sometimes that was ethnic, but in all cases, it was actually sinful. You see, the reality is it's easy for us to, in my case, look out for the Irish. Now, I'm glad yesterday that all of you got to be Irish for a day. So welcome. It's a good place to be. 
But the reality is, is that isolationism, where we love people like us, is actually what Jesus says, everybody does that. That's not a big deal. In Jesus' day, it was a patriotic duty to hate non uh, Jews, particularly the Romans, right? That was the day, that was what it was, that was the duty was to hate people. And, and, and maybe in our day, there's a patriotic duty to hate certain kinds of people around the world. I remember the backlash I received when I, after the Boston Marathon bombing, I wrote an article in USA Today, and the article was simply entitled, Love Your Neighbor, Including Your Muslim One. Oh, I got a lot of letters for that. And don't misunderstand, I'm not naive about the threat of, uh, of global radical Islamism. I'm not naive about, about the challenge that relates to that. I'm not naive that this is something that's a global reality that will take decades in the struggle that we have. I'm not naive about any of those things, but I've also read my Bible, and Jesus says I don't get to hate them. Instead, i got to pray for them and show the love of Jesus to them. Now, the reality is that's a hard message for us to receive. I will tell you, I, even saying the last few sentences, I wouldn't be surprised if I'll receive some comments. And that's okay, because as followers of Jesus, we love like Jesus loved, and he loved his enemies. See, Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, which leads to number two on our outline is the true meaning so we look at the true meaning. We look at the law. This is the same outline we've used for weeks. We looked at the law. We now look at the true meaning, and that starts with, but I say to you, okay, it goes on from here. It says, you've heard what it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. Now, this is key, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Don't miss this last part. So here's what we're supposed to do. But I say, this is the new Jesus teaching, but I say, you've heard hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now, there's a lot in here to unpack, and last week we talked about turn the other cheek, and many of you asked if every week I could slap Pastor Bill Birchie in a sermon, but we're not going to do that. Um, but again, we talk about how we respond to that, about restraining one's sense, about self, about de-escalating a conflict, and, and that made some sense to you. Maybe some of you say, well, that makes sense. I mean, that's a way we de-escalate things. But then you look at this one. Who's ever heard of loving one's enemies or praying for those who persecute you? Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying Jesus has given us an easy way here. But before you uh, cross the line to hatred, uh, what, what, what happens is, is we are called to instead love those. To perhaps that means to see the hurt, to see the struggle, see the pain. Not to be naive about the reality that there are security implications, that there are things that matter that the government does and should do. But Jesus calls his followers to pray for and seek the good of. And I, let, me, let me tell you how I seek the good of of every person who would seek to do us or me evil, they need Jesus. I want you to miss that. They need Jesus. And so that's the message that I'm going to keep sharing. So the sharing, so the kingdom way, the Jesus way, is not to hate your enemies, but to love them and to love them in such a deep way that you are compelled to pray for them. And I don't know about you, but how often do you pray for your enemies? 
But Jesus says his true followers, members of God's greater righteousness kingdom, are to pray for their enemies. And in the context of Jesus' life and in the early church to which Jesus writes, religious persecution is real. Christians were facing imprisonment and persecution and execution for their devotion to Jesus. And Jesus is explicit in his rationale about why you should do this. You say, Ed, I don't want to do this. Let me tell you why Jesus says you should do this. Look with me at the passage. It says, so that, okay, so that, go back one more, so that you will be sons, it says here, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Now, sons and daughters be applicable here. So if you're going to be a son and daughter of Jesus, this is what it looks like, is that you are supernaturally praying for and loving your enemies and those who persecute you. Now, why, why so that you may be sons of your Father uh, who is in heaven? Because I want you to miss this, right? I want you to miss this, right? Because it's in God's very nature to love. It's God is love. It's in God's very nature to love. And in Jesus' day, agriculture was a, was a key thing, right? So uh, agriculture was the primary economic engine and venue. And farmers then and now understood the value of rain and sunshine, right? So, so what happens in the next verse here, what, what, I want you to miss this, right? In the text itself, it says that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, but then it says, for he makes, well, let's look at it on the screen, for he makes his sun rise, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and send rains on the just and the unjust. Don't miss this, right? So what Jesus is saying and his agrarian audience would understand is that, okay, God loves everybody, so he actually lets them have the sun on their crops and them have the rain on their crops, even the just and the unjust. So the people who are evil and hate God, God still shows his love towards them by giving them rain and by giving them sunshine. So they're, his indiscriminate good gifts are given. So God has given these gifts, right? Now again, be, let's be careful when we talk about how he gives sunlight and rainfall, which are part of what um, been called, John Calvin called common grace. And salvation, which is a special grace or a saving grace, is a difference between the two. There's no hint of that this means everybody, just, just everybody without trusting in Christ has a universal and eternal life. That's not the case. Those who reject God will face judgment. But even as we talked about this last week, right, our pattern of service to others, our love for others, even who oppress us, is a proclamation of the love and forgiveness that will draw people to Jesus. Similarly, if we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we display God's character to others. Because every day, God is giving in his goodness sunshine and rain to the world, and it goes on often to a world that hates him. I mean, what a great day it is today, right? I mean, you came to church, you got up this morning, it's going to be a high of 52 degrees today, maybe a little higher in some places. It is a great day, and you're enjoying the day. You know why? You're enjoying the day because Jesus gave you this day. This is a day God gave you, and it's like, this is awesome, right? This is the beginning of spring, right? No more cold and snow, right? Oh, that's not true? I spoke too soon. I should have checked with a groundhog. Um, 
So Jesus gave that to you, but I don't want you to miss this, right? He also gave it to sinners and publicans, right? He gave it, he gave this beautiful day to people you don't like. He gave this beautiful day to people who hate you. He gave this beautiful day to, to people who differ than you. He gave people, you just don't like, he gave this to Republicans. <laughs> and he gave it to Democrats. And he gave it to Independents. He gave it to people who love President Trump and people who don't love President Trump. He gave it to people who, who you know, I got to tell you, I, having lived in Illinois for my first electoral season, Wow, you people have a lot of commercials on television. <laughs> and everybody hates everybody else. I had no idea there were so many evil people running for office in Illinois. <laughs> I mean, everybody is horrible according to the ads that I've seen. I just want to call the police on every single candidate. <laughs> like, these are horrible people. <laughs> I don't know what you're clapping for. Are you agreeing with me or... My point is the negative ads, everybody's horrible. But you know what? God gave them the sunshine today, even though they don't deserve it. And I hope this election is over soon so I can see some other commercials. <laughs> I just miss commercials for toys and music and anything other than, this person is horrible. <laughs> but here's the thing, the tying in to what God does is key. See, and, but it's also key that we not miss this, right? Because it's, it talks about here, it says, right, uh, you, you, so you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now, this is not saying this is how you become a son of your Father. This is not about the entry into being a son and a daughter. It's about the evidence of being a son and a daughter. So again, what does it say? All right, it says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. So not entry, but evidence. You'll, this will be, you'll be like you're supposed to be. Now, what does your father in heaven do? He makes sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So if God can lovingly engage a world that is in need and is due for his judgment, can you not lovingly engage your enemy who is in need and is due for judgment? That's the evidence of the Christian life. You say, Ed, I like the message last week where it was about de-escalating conflict. I can do that. Yeah, this gets a little harder, but it gets to the heart, doesn't it? And remember what Pastor Bill said that was so important that I've come back to a few times, right? That the heart of the law reflects the heart of God. And what we're finding here is the teaching of here, Jesus' new way of life reflects the heart of God that can actually be troubling to us. So let's look at number three, right? Number three in our outline is the application. Same number three we've had for weeks now. We look at the law, the true meaning, and then the application. And then in verse 46, it says this, for if you love those who love you, what's the big deal? Okay, that's not quite what it says. That's the New York translation that I grew up. What are you talking about? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Can I tell you? I got no problem if you think that I'm wonderful, I really like you. It's sometimes hard to like people or love people who think you're pretty terrible, right? But that's what Jesus is calling us to, right? For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
I don't miss that. So don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, don't miss this, right? Because we've gone from hate. Now, you say, how does he define hate? Pretty broadly, right? So it says hate. So you go from persecute. So you've got to love those who hate you and persecute you. But then it says that the example Jesus gives, and if you greet only your brothers, right? Again, brothers and sisters, this ter- terminology refer to both. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Now, here's the thing. I want you not to miss this. All the way from persecution and hate to ignoring somebody and not greeting them is the length and the breadth of this. So I want you to miss this. So for those of you who come to Moody Church and there's somebody you don't like, so you sit over there so you won't run into them over here, this is talking about you. I don't want to see them. I'm going to go out. I go out a different exit so I don't have to run into them. Right? I don't, I don't want to greet, I don't want to greet you, Ed, because, you know, I'm not a big fan. Well, okay, great. Can I just say that for, for all of us and the conflicts and challenges that are here in life, if we don't even greet one another, now, again, this is an effusive greeting we'd see in the New Testament time, hug and kiss and all that, and, and I'm not suggesting that we adopt that in our culture today, but the application is pretty strong. See, an enemy is to the point of just someone you refuse to say hello to. So who are you mad at? That's the level of enemy that Jesus is actually talking to. God brings rain and sunshine to his enemies. I know what you're thinking. My enemies deserve a cold, long Chicago winter. Of course, thank God he doesn't always give us that, right? We've had that a few years ago and and didn't have anything like that last year. But, But we think our enemies deserve a cold winter. God says everybody deserves a cold winter. But I bring rain and sunshine on the just and the unjust, the evil, and the good. And love and pray, says it earlier, is what we're called to do, is to love and to pray. So the picture that we see is, is God loves even his enemies, and we manifest God's character. We manifest God's character. You say, but Ed, there are so many hypocrites in the church. Yeah, this is what's here to fix this, right? There are so many hypocrites in the church. I get it, right? Come join us. You'll fit right in. But basic human instinct is kind of, you look after your own, but Jesus says his disciples are to live a different way. His disciples are to live a different way. Now, I think that's key. So if you're to be a person of forgiveness, you'll need an extra measure of God's grace and a clear measure of Jesus' work. And I want you to miss this, right? If you're to be a person of forgiveness, you're going to need an extra measure of God's grace and a clear reminder of God's work. So then, the whole section, all six of these things, right? All six of these things, they end with in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Let's take a look. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a, wow, that's a strong ending. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So how do we live out that perfection, right? What does that, what does that mean? Is there anybody who's lived up to this? Well, a couple of things about the Word will help us. First, I'm not going to de-emphasize the word. It really does speak to living this perfection, not a standard, not an achievement, but a direction. We're consistently looking to grow and live in spiritual maturity. And in the midst of spiritual maturity, what do we do? We grow towards a greater sense of perfection. But the word actually speaks to that maturity. You've got to be mature as your heavenly father. You're going to reflect the character of God. Now, if we didn't see this in the other five, in six, you've got to see it. 
If you're going to be sons of God, this is what sons of God look like. They love their enemies and they pray for them who persecute you because God, you want to look like God, he sends sun and rain on people who are his enemies, who have chosen to be his enemies. He, so what does that mean? Well, don't, don't, don't miss the call that all of us have. We have a call now to respond and trust Jesus. Don't miss the trust. And trust Jesus so we can walk in maturity and grow to be more like him who is perfect. Now, it's perfect. now again, again, I want to tell you, when I, say, when I talk about this word, I say, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The comparison is clear. You say, now, Ed, well, does that mean right now I should be perfect, or is there a time I can achieve sinless perfection? Well, there's enough verses in the Bible that tell us that we can't, that we are made clean and perfect in Christ. So you don't want you to miss this, because all of the verses we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount are all predicated with the idea that you are a follower of Jesus. See, that he ransomed you, because he didn't come to, to, to be served, he came to serve. Think of all the contrast. So he came, right, and in Matthew 21, 31, it's not on the screen, in Matthew 21, 31, it says that tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom before the priests. Now that's, how, how can that be? Well, here it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then you say that tax collectors and prostitutes are going, Jesus says, they're going into the kingdom before these religious leaders. How does that come from? Because this sermon is for God's people. And the way you respond as God's people, it starts in the very first verse on the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at it months ago where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got to admit spiritual bankruptcy, be filled with the Holy Spirit through the renewing work of Jesus Christ, and then you can seek to live like Jesus and reflect the character of the Father who is perfect will then grow in that perfection. So, Lou Zamperini had a lot of reason to be angry and vengeful. But based on what you've learned about Jesus' teaching this morning, what do, you, what do you think he should have done if he ever met the living Jesus? If he met Jesus, he should go and find not this Japanese officer to kill, but this Japanese officer to, to love. What would forgiving your enemy look like for someone who's so filled with rage and so justified in his hatred by our standards? Well, to be honest, we don't have to speculate because though the movie didn't tell us, the rest of the story does. See, just before his wife filed for divorce, he showed some neighbors talking about a religious meeting that was taking place in her town. A young evangelist named Billy Graham was having a revival in Los Angeles in 1949. Cynthia Zamperini went that night. She met Jesus. She was changed by the power of the gospel. When she came home, she was a reborn woman. She declared she didn't want to divorce Louis Zamperini, that she had had a religious conversion. She eventually talked Louis Zamperini into attending that service. He ran out during the altar call, but came back the next night to hear Graham again. That night, he professed Jesus as Lord, and he was a changed man, changed so much that next year he flew to Japan to personally forgive many of his captors who themselves now were in prison for their war crimes. He came back in 1998 to carry the Olympic torch during the Winter Games as well. He tried to meet each time with his former enemy who tortured him, but he refused to meet with Zamperini. Now, you didn't see that in the movie, but there is another movie coming out, actually. 
Do you remember a few months ago, maybe it was more than that now, I remember a few months ago I brought uh, Will Graham, Billy Graham's grandson, to church, and he sat with me right over, right over there, and we talked about his grandfather had preached here, and one of the things he said to me is, he, he didn't want me to bring him up because his hair was really long. And, and, and I said, oh, okay, I won't do that. Why is your hair really long? He says, well, I'm, I can't. It's not public, but it is now. He says, I'm playing my grandfather in the movie that tells the rest of Louis Zamperini's life. Says, and, 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 I, and I said to him, your grandfather didn't have really long hair. He said, I know, filmmakers. Um, <laughs> but but so, so what happened in 1949, actually the tent in 1949 is, uh, Pastor Lutz and I just went to the Billy Graham funeral. That tent at the funeral was a replica of the tent in 1949. That tent in 1949 reminds us, right, just as the funeral, what is the message that Billy Graham preached? You'd receive new life in Christ, but then you live new life in Christ. Don't miss this. You receive new life in Christ, but then you live new life in Christ, and you look like your father who loves even his enemies. And if God can love his enemies then as his children, empowered by his spirit and united with his son, so we too can forgive our enemies. This is what Jesus has called us to do. I want you to miss that because sometimes we can rush through this. You say, Ed, there's a lot of complications. Does that mean that they're not legally responsible for their actions? No, it does not. Does that mean I pretend significant things didn't happen and forget them? No, forgiving is not forgetting. What it means, and there's much more to this, but can we agree that Jesus calls us to a supernatural level of love that goes to the, from the people that we hate or tortured Louis Zamperini and goes all the way down to the person you're trying to avoid leaving church today because you don't like them? That's a broad spectrum. But we serve a God who remakes all of our lives. And as followers of Jesus, we love like Jesus loved. And he loved his enemies. The heart of the law reflects the heart of God. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that the evidence will be there before you. Now, if you're here today or worshiping with us online, if all of us respond to this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to respond to this. Don't, when you hear be perfect for the heavenly Father, as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect, you say, I can't do that. You're right. Actually, without the power of God, I can't even work and grow towards that. If you hear that verse and that drives you to giving up, great. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to meet Jesus today and trust and follow him. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to ask the question, are there some enemies that in light of you reflecting the character of God who sends rain and sunshine on people who are his enemies that you've got to love. I don't know what God will call you and how God will shape that for you, but are there people to whom you need to love? Let's take some moment. Let's bow our heads and take the opportunity to respond. Father, we come before you this morning and we look to this passage. This is a hard passage. It's hard for me, having in my life experienced a crime and hurt and pain, that then you still call me to love my enemies. Father, I know that's complex, and I probably wouldn't walk through that without acknowledging the complexity. But Father, I pray as well that you might burden us to reflect the character of God in our lives 
so we might sing Hosanna and give you praise and turn it over to you. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, could you do that? That enemy, someone who's persecuted you, someone who's worked against you, could you say, Lord Jesus, help me to love them? I don't even know all of what that means yet, but help me to love them. Just take just a moment. I know who it is that the Lord's bringing to your mind. Maybe it's someone in church you're trying to avoid, or maybe it's something as terrible as what's happened. Now, again, there are things that I want to remind you of the complexity that you just say, I can't do this, or this is so horrible. We have staff that will walk you through with counsel and counseling. So we don't want to universalize everything here. But for most of us, we can say, Lord, help me to love those who've worked against me. If you're here today, while others around you are dealing with that love, would you receive the love of Jesus? If you're not a follower of Jesus, in just a moment, uh, prayer counselors will actually be standing in front, and you can actually pray with them. When, you're, when you stand up, they're going to come right up front, and, and you can come pray with them while we're singing or after as well, because I want you to be able to respond. Maybe to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. I want the chains that Louis Zamperini experienced and lived a life of peace and joy that came from that relationship. Just in the same spirit of prayer you're in right now, would you stand with me? Let's, let's stand together. Our prayer counselors are going to come to the front right now. And while they're here up front, you can actually come to them. So they're going to be here, and you can come to them and say, I want to pray with them so I might know what it is to be a follower of Jesus. So ask, pray, sing, say, Lord, make my heart like yours. Isn't that what we're praying today? And if you need prayer, we're here. We're ready for you. Respond. Don't leave this room without dealing with what the Lord's dealing with you. So let's sing together and give him worship.